27 and 28. Shall we begin by bowing together in prayer? Our Father, our sufficiency is not of ourselves, but is in him who is the eschatological David. And we do pray that as we examine the life of the historical David, that you will enable us to see what clearly appears in the reality of the Son of the Father. We lay our heads down upon his sacred breast. We ask you to give us the light of his spirit as we seek to unfold his life, even as it is dramatized in the life of his servant, David. May we be servants of the son of David as well. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want you to notice a textual matter at the beginning of this uh, <clears throat> section on chapter 27. You'll notice from the outline handout that I have suggested that this section as a narrative unit goes through chapter 28, verse 2. The justification for that is that in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28, we are still dealing with the characters, the dramatis personae of the previous chapter. And so if a case could be made for a mistaken division of chapters in the Bible, here is one place uh, where we could say <clears throat> those that split up the chapters made a mistake. <clears throat> they, of course, are not infallible, <clears throat> and so uh, we will indulge them the same fallibility that belongs to us. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I am suggesting that we should extend chapter 27 through verse 2 of chapter 28, and that chapter 28, verse 1, should actually begin at verse 3 uh, of your English Bible. <clears throat> it's not a big point, but it is an interesting observation of uh, the fact that those who did split the Bible into chapters <clears throat> in the late Middle Ages and early in the Reformation period uh, <clears throat> uh, flew by the seat of their pants sometimes and uh, didn't always get it right. But nonetheless, most of the time they did, as uh, you have seen so far in these studies up to chapter 27. All right, having <clears throat> observed that point, uh, then we dig in here to chapter 27, and we ask, have we been here before? Do you sense a deja vu? Have we seen Achish before? Has David been to see the king 
in Gath, Achish, yes, he has in chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. So we're revisiting a location and an individual that we uh, saw David visit before. And uh, going back to last week's study, uh, we learned that chapter 26 also has a deja vu reflection. It looks back to chapter 24. And when our author does this, uh, when the narrator duplicates a location or a similar narrative or similarity of characters, he is doing this for a particular reason. It is not incidental to his narrative plan. Uh, He may want to intensify or to emphasize or to underscore an antithesis, that is a tension uh, between uh, two elements. He may want to harmonize in a more dramatic way these similarities. But I suggested last week with chapter 26 and its relationship to chapter 24, where David and Saul encounter one another, that the antithesis between 26 and 24 is the emerging upward spiral of David and the downward spiral of Saul, even to the point at the end of 26 where we find them separated from one another. They will never meet again in this book or in David's lifetime. And so the narrative duplication there is unto dramatization of the fact that Saul and David are being drawn apart, driven apart, the inevitable upward and downward spiral of the two major characters thus far in 1 Samuel. Let's therefore compare chapter 27 and uh, David's visit to Achish for the second time with chapter 21, verses 10 to 15. You will notice in verse 2 of chapter 27 that the text reads, David arose. If you keep your finger there and turn back in your Bible to chapter 21, verse 10, and keep your finger in that spot so you can flip back and forth, You will notice that the very same phrase is duplicated in 21.10, David arose. All right, so our author has exactly and precisely repeated a phrase that he used before when David went down to Gath. Now, back to chapter 27, verse 2, you will notice that the verb that he uses here is David crossed over. Now, I'm going to suggest that that verb is a verb of deliberation. That is, it's a deliberate act on David's part. If you turn back to chapter 21, verse 10, you will notice the verb is that David arose and fled. And I'm going to suggest that that is a precipitate act of David, a contrast between a deliberate and a precipitate act. Now, why do I suggest that David, when he crosses over in 27, is doing something deliberately? Notice the next series of uh, clauses. 
he and his 600 men and his two wives, verse 3. David deliberately goes down to Gath on this second occasion with his entire entourage. Now, if you go back to chapter 21, you will notice that when David goes down to Gath for the first time, he goes down alone. It is a solitary, precipitate act of escape from Saul's threats. Here, he goes with his band of outcasts. He goes with his band of outcasts and his own wives. This is a well-planned and deliberate act on David's part. It is not an act of precipitate desperation as he goes alone for the first time. There is a difference, therefore, between David's descent to Gath in chapter 27 and his descent in chapter 21. Now he appears before Achish, king of Gath, and you'll notice one slight difference between chapter 27, verse 2, and chapter 21, verse 10. We find out the name of Achish's father in the second visit. He is the son of Maok. That does not appear in chapter 21. So the patrimony of Achish is added to the description in chapter 27. Now, having appeared before Achish, he presents himself to the king in verse 5 of chapter 27, pleading, have I found favor or if I have found favor in your sight. Here is David entreating Achish for a favor. In verse 13 of chapter 21, He appears before Achish and immediately acts insane or scribbles on the gates of gas, his saliva dribbling down into his beard in order to preserve or to save his life. The contrast is once again between a deliberate move of entreaty, begging favor, entering into Achish's favor in chapter 27, as compared to chapter 21, where he appears as a lone fugitive warrior who must, out of an act of desperation, preserve his own life by feigning insanity. Finally, verse 12 of chapter 27, where Achish makes an assumption about David's appearance in his presence. Achish says, you have become my servant. In chapter 28, verse 2, a parallel, you become my bodyguard. Achish assumes that David has come in order to be the conscious servant of the king of Gath. But in chapter 21, verse 15, Achish makes a different assumption. You will notice that he states that David is a madman. He assumes that the the king of Israel is insane. All right, so we have a progression between the two incidents. And as we examine David's behavior in chapter 27 and look 
at his career in terms of its ongoing upward spiral. He, as the elect king after God's own heart, is he in chapter 27 behaving as one who is after God's own heart, one who is bound up in the bundle of the living God, as Abigail designates him in chapter 25. Most commentators say no. David is not uh, pursuing his upward spiral in chapter 27. David is, in fact, afraid of death in verse 1 of this chapter, and he has turned downward in his own faith, in his own uh, sense of his uh, protection by God. What has happened to chapter 26, verse 24, where David says, So may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord. May he deliver me from my enemies. And here is David fleeing to Philistia because of the fear of Saul. And so it appears as if David is not moving upwardly consistent with what he had stated at the end of chapter 26. His life valued in the presence of God. It looks like he's running out of fear. The second thing you will notice is that when David leaves the promised land of Israel to go down to Gath in Philistia, he voluntarily fulfills chapter 26, verses 19 and 20. You will notice in that passage that he had pleaded with Saul not to force him to be driven out of the inheritance of the Lord and go serve other gods. So here is David being driven out of the inheritance of the Lord to take up his residence with an alien people worshiping strange gods, the chief god of the Philistines being Dagon. For the second reason, this is strike two against David in chapter 27. The commentators conclude that David's unbelief, his weak faith, drives him out of God's presence into the land of pagan Philistia. He takes refuge with the enemies of the people of God. And therefore, many commentators and observers conclude chapter 27 demonstrates a David not strong in faith, but weak in faith. A David who is giving aid and comfort to the enemy by uh, going to seek favor in the sight of the enemy king of the people of God. Or is he? Does this chapter describe a David in fearful collaboration with the enemies of God? Or does this chapter require a more careful reading? Are the majority of commentators in their negative evaluation of David's character here in chapter 27 to be followed? Or do we take a different road 
with respect to David's actions in this chapter. Leaving that aside for a moment, let us observe that Saul is apparently inconsistent with himself in terms of his last speech in chapter 26, verse 25. You will notice that he had concluded his exchange with David as he had chased him. Blessed are you, David, you will accomplish much and surely prevail. In other words, Saul, as much as saying he would let David go. But here he is on David's trail, apparently again searching. Notice verse 1 and notice the bracket with that very same word in verse 4. He searched no longer. David is being sought. He is being hotly pursued by Saul after Saul has apparently said that he would let him be. If Saul is inconsistent with his last speech in the previous chapter, is David also inconsistent with his last speech in the previous chapter? Do we have our narrator focusing upon the inconsistency of the protagonist and antagonist in this drama, namely David and Saul? The apparent state of the main characters in chapter 26 looks as if it is reversed in chapter 27. A pacified Saul at the end of 26 is hostile once more at the beginning of 27. The life of David, valued in God's sight at the end of 26, is in a state of fearful flight at the beginning of 27. Or so it would appear. So it would appear. We turn our attention now to the light verter, or the key word, or leading word of this chapter. And we notice that the term that is used most frequently is the term day, or days in Hebrew, yam or hayam. In verse 1, you will notice the term. In verse 6, you will find it two times. In verse 7, you will find the plural. In verse 11, you will see the phrase all the time. If you have a more modern version, it is literally all the days. And so days appears in verse 11 in the literal Hebrew text. In verse 1 of chapter 28 in the plural and two times in again in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 2 again. But notice it is in the phrase which may be translated in your versions for life. My bodyguard for life, literally the Hebrew reads, my bodyguard all the days. And what is the length of the days of David's sojourn in Gath or in Philistia? Verse 7 of chapter 27 tells us 16 months of days. David's escape in verse 1 becomes his place of daily residence in verse 5 and becomes a place of daily residence for a year and one-third in verse 7. 
David has gone to Philistia with the liberation to stay for many days. He is not there on a precipitate flight. So we conclude from the key word in the chapter that it does not appear that David's goal in traveling to Philistia was a temporary remedy for a state of panic. It does not appear that he is fleeing in desperation for a brief respite, planning not planning to return to Israel as soon as possible. He remains away from the land of Israel for over a year. Are you beginning to think about reading the narrative somewhat differently? Now, one other point in support of my first observation this evening, namely that this narrative must extend into chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. You will notice that I specified that the light verter or the key word of days or days which occurs in chapter 27 also occurs in those first two verses of chapter 28. That is a, uh, shall we say, cinch of the argument that the chapter should have been broken at 28.3, not at 28.1. All right, now I want to direct your attention to the similarities of the beginning and the end of chapter 27. Look at verse 1. David said... Now, your margin says to himself, or in his heart, if you have a marginal reading there, keep that in the back of your mind. David says to himself, or in his own heart, verse 12, Achish says, or Achish is saying, it's the same Hebrew word, root rather, Achish is saying to himself. Nobody is hearing what Achish is saying, nobody's hearing what David is saying. Verses 1 and 12 are a bracket of internal disposition or internal motivation. It appears to Achish that David will be his servant forever, saying within himself, David will be my bodyguard forever. That is David's pattern of behavior throughout the chapter, that is clearly allied with Achish and the Philistines. Achish concludes that it appears that David has come to be his ally and the ally of the Philistine nation. So it appears to Achish. So clear is David's apparent loyalty to Achish that he declares he will make him his personal Bodyguard for life, chapter 28, verse 2. Notice that term forever in 28.2 is parallel to 27.12. Also, excuse me, please observe the marginal reading of chapter 28, verse 2. He will be the keeper of my head. The keeper of my head. Now, why 
do I draw your attention to this? Because the Philistines decapitated their enemies as David did Goliath the Philistine, and the Philistines will do to Saul in chapter 31, verse 9. Decapitation was a form of humiliation, and the Philistines used it as many other ancient and even modern uh, 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 terrorists use it in order to humiliate their victims. It is one thing that is so abhorrent about the guillotine of the French Revolution. That device was developed in order to cut off the heads of those they abhorred in order to remove their dignity from them. It is what is so insidious about slapping a person in the face. You are showing that you do not, you are assaulting their dignity. You do not respect their person. It is a vicious act. It is not incidental. It is not circumstantial to assault a child, to assault anyone on the face, unless you are defending your life. So this uh, mode of punishment, decapitation, particularly in this case, is to humiliate the enemy even in death. So David is to be retained by Achish as the one who will keep Achish's head intact or so it would appear. But is David the vassal of Achish? Is David his servant forever? Will David be Achish's head keeper, or will he be so close to Achish as to remove Achish's head as he removed Goliath's. David's ambiguous answer in verse 2 of chapter 28, you shall know what your servant can do, gives us pause. It doesn't give Achish pause because he thinks he knows what David means, but it should give us pause For the narrator wants us to pause and think about what will David do? And what is David been, what has David been doing? This pregnant pause in verse two only leaves us in suspense a suspense drawn out by the insertion of the next incident, Saul's visit to the witch of Endor. This statement of David in 28.2 leaves us pondering, pondering whether in fact appearance is reality, and we must ponder that retrospectively looking back over the entire incident of 27.1 to 28.2.
Is David, in fact, a Philistine collaborator, a protector of the Lord God's enemies, a servant in perpetuity of the oppressor of the Lord's anointed? Or does he only appear to be so? Hmm. In his first visit to Achish in Gath, David appeared to be insane. Reality was something else. As the narrator himself tells us in chapter 21, verse 13, he disguised his sanity. Our narrator then gives away the store or the story. He tells us that David was apparently insane, but really very much in control of his very shrewd facilities. Shrewd enough to know what he had to pretend, how to play act in order to save his own life, even to the point of dribbling his saliva down upon his beard and scratching on the gates of Gath as if he were mad. Appearance is not reality in the first visit of David to Gath in chapter 21. Is our narrator revisiting that motif in in chapter 27? Is it deja vu with the very same motif that on David's second visit to Achish in Gath, David seems to feign nothing, or so it appears. He seems to play act at nothing, or so it appears. But what of the raids in verse 8 of chapter 27? What of these incursions of David in verse 8? What do the raids tell us of the real state of affairs, the true condition of David's motivation? Notice verse 11. It indicates that David's constant practice during his 16-month stay in Ziglag was to go out upon these raids. These aren't occasional incursions. These are regular marauding attacks. Verses 9 and 11. And as he goes, he devotes the men and the women in those places that he invades to destruction, to the harem in the Old Testament, the harem, which means the ban of destruction, so that there will be no tattletale voices to describe what he is really up to. Now, in verse 8, if you take a look at your map, you will see the region which David attacked. He goes from Ziglag as far as the land of Egypt 
that is down through the region of the Amalekites, the southwestern border of Israel. Our narrator and even David has a wonderful sense of irony. Saul had refused to devote the Amalekites to the harem, to the ban of destruction. In chapter 15, that is precisely the act of Saul that gets him unkinged, that gets him rejected, that causes God to cast him off as king of Israel. He refused to destroy the Amalekites. He refused to devote all of them to the ban of destruction. He saved Agag, the king, alive, and some of the best of the flocks and the sheep and the goats. And Samuel says, what is this bleating of sheep I hear in my ears? What is this disobedience that I hear in my ears, Saul? And so David does to the Amalekites what Saul refused to do. In chapter 27, from his base within the Philistine nation, David raids the territory of the Amalekites and fulfills the ban that God himself had pronounced against the Amalekites when they oppressed the children of Israel on their way up out of Egypt during the exodus and sojourn in the wilderness. Now, in addition to the Amalekites, David attacks the Geshurites. Now, there are two population groups of Geshurites in the Old Testament. There is one on the Transjordanian side, north and east of the Sea of Galilee. That is certainly not this group. They are too far away. David is not marching 60 miles to the north and crossing over the Jordan in order to attack a group of Geshurites. In Joshua chapter 13, verse 2, we find a group of Geshurites near Philistia. In fact, they are allies of the Philistines. And so this group of Geshurites are somewhere in the southern region where David is campaigning and they are allies of the Philistines. The third group, the Gerzites, are unknown, although they must also be a southern population group. We do not know where their residence was because we cannot identify, or archaeology and geography has not identified any location by this name. It appears with these raids as if David has reverted to his hot fury of bloodlust, something he demonstrated in chapter 25 when he strapped on his sword to go out and get Nabal, verse 13 of that 25th chapter. It looks as if David has now reverted to what Saul is perpetuating, namely this bloodlust of destroying those that oppose one. But in chapter 25, Abigail prevented him from his blood guilt. Has David forgotten Abigail's wise counsel here in chapter 27? It would appear so until we notice verse 3. 
that Abigail is with him in chapter 27. Abigail, who prevented David from bloodshed before, is present with David while he sheds blood in 27. Nabal's blood, no. The blood of the Amalekites, Geshurites, Gerzites, yes. Is David inconsistent? So it would appear. But David does not appear inconsistent to Achish in verse 10. Achish is pleased, pleased with David's report of his raids. So pleased, he tells himself, David will be his servant, his vassal forever. So it would appear. So our narrator wants us to think it appears. He is leading us in his narrative web in order to compel us to think that all is not as it appears. Well, how does he do that? We begin by asking ourselves, why would Achish look favorably upon David's raids to the Negev, which is simply the Hebrew word for the south? Those areas were troublesome to the Philistines. So our translation of verse 8 doesn't catch the sequence precisely. That is the impression that all of these groups in the Negev are attacked simultaneously. Actually, verse 10 explains that David claims to raid the Negev of Judah at one time. Look at your map. At another time, he claims to raid the Negev of the Jeramulites. And yet at another, he claims to raid the Negev of the Kenites. And Achish is pleased with David's report because these regions contain groups which have raided the Philistines. David appears to be the protector of Achish and the defender of the Philistine nation, or so it would appear to Achish. But clearly, we know differently. And our narrator has drawn us to see that it is not as it appears. David's remark to Achish in 28.2 is anticipated by our narrator in the entire body of chapter 27. The narrator has plainly divulged David's real plan, his real motivation for going down to Philistia. In verse 8, he reveals that David at one time attacks the Geshurites. At another time, he attacks the Gerzites. And yet at another time, he attacks the Amalekites. What appears to Achish as David's dealing with the enemies of the Philistines in the Negev is in fact David dealing with the enemies of Israel, the arch allies of enemies of Israel's enemy 
the Philistines, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. This comment in verse 8, that these groups inhabited the land of the Philistines from Shur to Egypt, associates them with the traditional enemy of Israel. As I said before, the enemies who barred the way to the promised land when Israel came up out of Egypt. In Exodus 17, the first battle that the released children of Israel meet is the battle with the Amalekites at Rephidim in chapter 17. And in that passage, Exodus 17, verse 16, God pronounces a perpetual curse upon the Amalekites, a curse which is repeated in Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. David, therefore, is the true champion of Israel. As he was when he slew Goliath, he is now when he attacks the enemies of Israel, even the ancient enemies of Israel, the Amalekites. He is on a mission to destroy the enemies of the people of God, delivering his own people by slaughtering her enemies. What David appears to be to Achish, he does not appear to be to us, thanks to the narrator who gives us the clues in the way David proceeds with his attacks and incursions. The reality is that David appears as the defender king of Israel. The impotent Saul is unable to secure Israel against the marauding raids of the Philistines and her allies. Though David resorts to deceit in order to conceal his actual role, nonetheless, he is defending the people of God. Now, some have attempted to exonerate David of the deceit in verse 10 by suggesting that he both raids the Geshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites in verse 8 as well as the Negev of Judah, the Negev of the Jeramielites, and the Negev of the Kenites in verse 10. The double pattern or iterative pattern, repeated pattern in this chapter, is reflecting the double game David is playing on his enemies. Appearance is not reality. And we ponder, we ponder, if this is holy war... (coughs) in which the ban of destruction, the harem, is used. If this is holy war, is deceiving your enemy justified? Is deceiving your enemy justified? We would say, go to it, rangers, seals, and every other body of of armed force personnel in the United States, Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and so on. We would say, go to it and deceive the enemy all you want. Trick them, fool them, suck them into a trap. Play the game of counterfeit. For it's war. And you save life by whatever means that you can do within the limits of a just war. 
David is not deceiving for the sake of appearances. He is deceiving for the sake of the reality of saving the lives of the people of God. And I will exonerate him on that ground as I will exonerate Douglas MacArthur or Admiral Nimitz or George Patton or any other person, including Hancock at Gettysburg. I will exonerate them for doing what was necessary to trap their enemy, deceive them, and fool them. Or do you think if Hancock had not hidden the 30,000 troops behind Big and Little Round Top on the third day at Gettysburg that we wouldn't be singing Dixie today? You don't know how close it was there if you have never walked on that battlefield. You don't know how close it was. You get a sense of it if you watch that great film, Gettysburg. But you don't know how close it was until you walk that field and see how the North fooled Lee and his generals. Well, David is fooling Achish, and the inhabitants of Philistia. And he is doing it in order to deliver his people and in order to undermine, to undermine the, uh, the buildup of enemy uh, strength in this nation, which has harassed Israel since the time she settled into the promised land under Joshua. All right, we have this double game then, a game of double identity, a game of double cross, a game that David is emphatically demonstrating by a double pattern. Notice verse 7 and verse 11. David lived in the country of the Philistines, exact duplicate, parallel doubling. The first of the doublet is followed by the attack on the Amalekites and others. The second of this doublet, verse 11, is preceded by the report of that attack. In other words, this double game is being doubly underscored by our narrator, to give you a clue, the David is double-crossing Achish. Now, verses 8 and 10. Notice the word raided and raid. It is the same Hebrew word in those two verses. The first of the doublets describes the raids on the Amalekites and others. The second of the doublet is followed by the report of the raids on the Negev. Again, this double emphasis Upon David's double cross, the narrator is laying down the clues so that you can follow David's true motivations. What appears in David is not reality. Appearances are deceiving. The doubling pattern emphatically displays the twofold, the double role of David. What he appears to be to Achish, a loyal vassal or servant, he really is not. 
What he appears to be to Achish, he really is not. And what he appears to be to Israel and to us, a traitor or a collaborator, he really is not. He really is not. He is the Trojan horse inside the Philistine nation. He has deliberately taken his entourage of 600 mighty men and he has crossed over that border in order to decimate the enemy from within. He has done it intentionally. He has done it with all of his shrewdness. He has done it with all of his chutzpah. He has done it magnificently. And so David goes to Philistia for more than the appearance of an escape from Saul. Like Samson of old, he goes to Philistia to take vengeance on Israel's ancient enemy. Avenge me one last time, O Lord, Samson cries, And as he pulls down the pillars of that temple of Dagon, those that he killed in his dying were more than he killed in his living. The deliverer of the people of God. David goes to Achish for more than a place to live with his fugitive guerrilla band, his wives, perhaps even his children, if we credit chapter 30, verse 3, as being retroactive to this chapter. Ziglag is a place where David may have room to pursue his true plan to attack the enemies of the people of God without Achish being any the wiser. David here is acting the part of a true king and defender of God's flock. He is acting the shepherd of Israel, even in a strange and foreign land. David, a fifth column inside his enemy's kingdom, with nothing less than the permission of that king to range over his land and take vengeance on God's enemies. How much better could you have planned it? David is no logistical dummy. He is a brilliant military strategist, and he has insinuated himself into enemy territory in order to conduct the holy war of God against his enemies. The fact that what appears to be the case in chapter 27 is not actually so, it is hidden in David's own heart. I go back to the marginal reading of verse 1 of chapter 27. David said in his heart, he knows what he's going there to do. He's got it all planned out. He knows what he's bringing his entourage over that border to do. The twofold purpose of David is clear at the climax of this narrative. Notice verses 1 and 2 of chapter 28. Structure the two verses. Achish said to David, verse 1. David said to Achish, verse 2a. Achish said to David, verse 2b. Achish doubly asserts 
what he takes to be the case. David on my side, fighting with me, my personal bodyguard against Israel. And sandwiched between Achish's two speeches, David's comment. You shall know what your servant will do. You shall know what your servant will do. Because your servant has already been doing certain things. Which you shall know about sooner or later. When I go back over that border. And leave you to realize that I snookered you, Achish. I snookered you royally. And I did it in order to save my people from your oppression. David's comment arises here from what he already knows, and that's the reason it's sandwiched between Achish, what Achish thinks he knows. He knows what he's doing in defending Israel and attacking Philistia's, Philistia's allies. Notice how David describes himself in that passage, your servant, echoing chapter 27, verse 12, where Achish calls him my servant. You think I am your servant, your vassal, and you are my liege lord, my sovereign suzerain. No, your servant is vassal to the great king, the cosmic lord and sovereign, the suzerain of heaven and earth, the Lord of Philistia and Israel and the four corners of the world. Your servant is the strong man who has invaded the arena of the enemy in order to conquer and to destroy that enemy. Your servant, Achish, is the strong man who has come in to your domain in order to destroy the enemies of the people of God. All of David's actions here in 1 Samuel 27 are oriented to the future. The future occupation and conquest of the territory of the enemy. The deliverance of God's people by the destruction of their oppressors. The confounding and defeat of the enemy's king and prince by infiltrating and penetrating his very own domain in order to dismantle it from within. David's actions here are oriented to the future. To the eschatological David who has crossed over to the territory of the enemy, who has delivered his people by destroying their oppressors, who has confounded and completely defeated the prince of darkness by infiltrating his arena in order to cast him out. I am the stronger man. For if I, by the finger of God, cast out Satan, then you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. To the world, it appears that our Savior, the crucified Son of David, is a reproach and a failure. 
or so it would appear. Great David's greater son has openly displayed the destruction of Satan and all his host at the cross. And in his resurrection, he is declared with power to be savior from death. In reality, in reality, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of God, Savior, Lord, King of kings, victor over all our enemies. Indeed, there is reality. I have time for some questions on this chapter. If you have any comments or observations you would like to present. George? Uh, I may have this wrong, but is this the, is this the same uh, incident where he is um, kept from going to fight against the Israelites by the advisors to the king, or is that a different account? No, that's a different account. All right, never mind. Margaret? Um, in verse 12, what made Achish believe that David was aboard by Israel? Because he's been saying he's attacking the Negev of Judah and so on, and those are Israelite territories. So he assumes that he has made himself uh, a reproach or made himself obnoxious to his own people, which is, of course, what David wants him to think. This is why he tells him that that's where he's been invading. So it wasn't just because he was living with the Philistines necessarily. No, it's because of his incursions, because of his activity. He's judging him on the basis of his apparent actions. So when David says, that's where I've been going, it's, oh, that's good. Those, those are our enemies. Those Judahites are Philistine enemies. Go beat them up. Link. Are there two Geshers? Are there two Geshers? <laughs> yeah, the Gesherite... Uh, Near Philistia, as I pointed out, is one Gesher and then the Gesher on the Transjordanian side, north and east of the Sea of Galilee. This, this Gesher is attached in Joshua 13.2. If you take a look at that verse, you'll notice that it's associated with the Philistines as an allied nation. So it's too far away from the Gesher of Maaka, for instance. Yes, Margaret? I think mean, verse 11 upholds your argument. You didn't want any message getting back together. Yes. <clears throat> no, no tattletale leaks. Robert? Uh, I don't know if it's true today, but back when I was in the Air Force, the I know that the officer corps for our special forces and... Uh, uh, especially Army Special Forces, their officer corps studied these chapters in the, uh, in the war college in, in great detail because he, uh, David is the prototype guerrilla warfare expert. Yeah. <laughs> and here we thought it was Che Guevara. <clears throat> it's good to know we got a real hero. 
not a communist punk. It might be interesting to get their textbooks and see what they have. That's fascinating. It's like Allen in World War I uh, looking at the Bible to find out that way up into uh, Israel and Palestine uh, with the Lords of Arabia. Allenby, yeah. Yes, Scott. On that war issue, would you apply that to the individual case that's always asked uh, if the Germans came to your house and asked if there's any Jews in here, would you say no? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Corey Ten Boom. Um... She, of course, said yes, as you know, and the famous uh, uh, guffaw that responded preserved the Jews that were under the floorboards. Um, I have taken the view that the uh, Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 were not justified in lying about the male babies. Um, I've taken that position basically out of John Murray's Principles of Conduct, which I respect highly as a textbook of ethics. Um, not that Murray is infallible, but um, this this issue had been debated uh, down through the history of, uh, of people that want to be faithful to the Word of God. And so you'll have persons of orthodox stripe on both sides of it. And uh, I suppose I would have years ago said that uh, Corey Ten Boom uh, was right to tell the truth and say, yes, they were, and then they didn't believe her. Uh, but I also think that uh, as I've had experience talking to uh, Dutch immigrants who did hide Jews in their basements and attics in Holland during the Second World War and, and said that there were no Jews there, they actually deceived the Germans. Uh, I've also listened to that case and in some ways, thank God that if they're wrong, they were at least wrong in preserving innocent life. So I guess my uh, question is, ask me when I'm in the midst of having to make the decision. I pray that I will make the right decision uh, that will honor God. And I'm not trying to appeal to situational ethics in order to, to do that. <clears throat> It's extremely difficult, you know, if you, if, if you begin to, if you've ever seen the film of Corey Ten Boom, the, the Billy Graham film that they made, uh, very, very well done. Uh, if you've ever seen it, you really begin to get gripped by what she went through in that, in that incident. <clears throat> and if you talk to other Dutch immigrants who did go through it too, <clears throat> you know, people that, that I've talked to that hid them routinely in their houses and their barns and so on in, in, in Holland. And when they came to the United States, they would tell the stories about it. And you, you listen just absolutely transfixed by the drama of it all and uh, hear them justify the fact that they, they deceived the Nazis and would not uh, t tell them the truth uh, in order to save those lives. So... There are both sides of your dilemma. <laughs> Thank you for putting me on the horns of it. Uh, it certainly focuses uh, our thinking on the point, Ling. Are you hedging on that because they're individuals? Or, I mean, if they had a, a certain governmental council that said, let's protect the Jews, you would say it's okay based on Calvin, right? <laughs> well, I don't want to uh, to. 
split hairs about individual national distinctions uh, because, strangely, you may think I do defend Bonhoeffer's attempt to assassinate Hitler. Uh, although Bonhoeffer was a radical heretic in many ways, he was courageous in attempting to uh, save Germany from further destruction. <clears throat> yes, Kristen. Is this terrorist activity on David's part? And is it, if it is, is it justified? I mean, he's killing. It's not terrorist activity; it's guerrilla activity. But it is holy war activity. The, the the ban of destruction that he uses is the classic mosaic harem. C-H-E-R-E-M. It's a technical Hebrew term that says a ban of destruction. So he is acting under God's blessing in what he's doing. Pete? The uh, Dutch people during the war justified their actions on the basis that their government in exile in England was, they were fighting for that government. And they uh, therefore were in the state of war. And uh, they did this not only with Jews, they did this with their own children. So they justified their deception on the basis of loyalty to the government in exile. Very good point. Now that helps you out of the dilemma a little better, doesn't it, Scott? I like that. See, it's good reform thinking. All right, now to chapter 28 which, as I've already justified, this narrative unit extends from verses 3 to 25. Now, verse 3 raises the deja vu issue once again. Have we been down this road before? Okay, you had a smile on your face there for a moment. Maybe it wasn't a smile of all-knowing, but... Where were they? Do you remember? Uh, 25. Chapter 25, verse 1. That's exactly right. In fact, 28.3 and 25.1 are a virtual duplicate in the original Hebrew. Now, why does our narrator repeat himself? I trust that by now you are beginning to learn that when you get duplications, you have something going on in the narrator's mind. It's going on in the story, it's in the history itself, but the narrator is putting that story with that duplication in his text in order to make you ask the question, now why are you doing this to me as I'm reading this? What's going on here? And he wants you to think with him more deeply and profoundly about what is going on in the narrative. All right, in 25.1, we experience the transition from the era of the theocratic judges, namely Samuel, to the era of the royal monarch, especially in chapter 25, the monarch who is after God's own heart, namely David. Chapter 25 and the, the death of Samuel and that 25th chapter focusing on David is the upward spiral in transition from Samuel to David, who is God's elect. 
Now, in 28.3, he repeats the formula of transition. Transition from the era of the theocratic judges, Samuel, to the era of the royal monarch. But here, the monarch rejected by God's own heart, namely Saul. The downward spiral in transition from Samuel to Saul, who is reprobate of the Lord, rejected by God. This chapter then displays how that spiral gyrates downward, straight to a witch's abode and the dark night of the soul. The transition now places the contrast between the figure of God's elect king and God's reprobate king. And in this chapter, we see that reprobation descending into the pit of death, death, and darkness. This is a horrible chapter, reflecting a horrible character in the soul of Saul. This is a despicable act and should be sufficient warning in its own right against any Christian collaboration with sorcerers, spiritists, or mediums. There is a warning here. Don't play around with that stuff. It's just like, don't go to Las Vegas. Don't even go near it. Stay away. Don't play around with those casinos. After all, if you were in a Christian Reformed church, you couldn't come to the communion table if you were participating in gambling. And that includes the Washington State Lottery. All right. Don't do it. Don't go down that road. Don't let them steal your money from you or your integrity. All right. Here at the end of his kingly career, Saul repeats the hiddenness of the beginning of his kingly career. He hides behind a disguise at Endor as he hid among the baggage in chapter 10, verse 22. This wicked king hides from God's designation as he hides from God's revelation. Saul's character is hidden, hidden among the baggage covering his anointing, hidden among other clothes covering his royal identity. It is not coincidental that the beginning and ending of Saul in 1 Samuel is Saul hiding. His removal of mediums and spiritists there in verse 3 is no mere banishment. That is, he is not just driving them out of the land. As verse 9 indicates, he has cut them off. And where that phrase occurs in the Old Testament, it means that they have been put to death. Here, he has cut them off, put them to death in accordance with the law of the Lord. Exodus twenty-two eighteen. Leviticus 19.31, Leviticus 20, verses 6 and 27, Deuteronomy 18.11. He 
He has cut them off, or so it would appear. She's very much alive, or so it would appear. This statement sets the stage for the ensuing drama of this chapter, namely that Saul had cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. All right, what about mediums and spiritists? The biblical passage that defines their function or their role is the Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, which indicates that mediums and spiritists are whisperers and mutterers. Whisperers and mutterers. The prophet Isaiah is indicating that they consult with and speak for the dead. They whisper and mutter on behalf of the dead. In practicing necromancy, claiming to be the means through which the spirits of the dead communicate with the living, these ventriloquists speak from the belly. There is one Hebrew term for their processes would indicate they speak out of their belly. The spirits of the dead speak from beyond the grave through the whispers and mutterings of these ventriloquists, or so it would appear. Verse 4 gives us the geography of this narrative. The bottom map, you will see, indicates that the Philistines have come down to Shunem and Saul goes around their lines or perhaps even through their lines as a result of his disguise in order to reach the town of Andur. But verse 6 is essential to this narrative. And the understanding of verse 6 is essential to this narrative. Silence. The silence of God. God does not speak to Saul in dreams. By Urim, he had slaughtered the priests at Nob. He does not speak to Saul by prophets. Samuel is dead. Whatever is spoken in this narrative is not of God. For God will not, God did not speak any longer to Saul by any means. God is silent. But you may say to me, verse 15 reads, Samuel said to Saul, and verse 16 reads, Samuel said. So it would appear. Or how can a dead Samuel prophesy when God will not answer Saul through a living Samuel or a living prophet? Does it confirm God's rejection of Saul that he is deceived, deceived in rejection through the projection of a deceiver? 
spiritist mediums flourish on deception and the power of suggestion. Ask Harry Houdini, who was perhaps the greatest magician of all time, yes, in his own way, better than David Copperfield, ask Harry Houdini, who made a pastime out of unmasking spiritists and mediums by shining a flashlight on their elevated megaphones and the trumpets that had left a black ring around the mouth of the medium. For when the room got dark, Houdini would take some boot black and smear it around the trumpet's mouthpiece that was laying on the table. And when the seance was over, well, lo and behold, there it was. He knew the tricks, you see. He understood the magic and deception that was involved. And so, as I say, he made a pastime or a hobby out of fooling them and unmasking their deception. We bring the issue of what appears here to this narrative. And verse 8, and who is the first to be deceived? The medium familiar with the spirits of the dead, or so it would appear, is unfamiliar with the identity of the living. She is deceived by the reality standing before her in flesh and blood. His clothes hide his identity. He tricks her with his clothes. She will trick Saul with the clothes of the specter she identifies as an old man, verse 14. The mantle or the robe of the specter portends Samuel, or so it would appear. And yet Samuel in real life reality had declared in 1 Samuel 15, 23, that rebellion is as the sin of divination. Rebellion is as the sin of sorcery, mediums, and spiritists. Rebellion, the sin of consulting mediums and spiritists, is rebellion against God. If divination is rebellion against God, will God endorse rebellion here? Will he endorse the rebellion of Saul by divination here? You can't avoid that question. You can't avoid it. And so you must come to grips with appearance and reality. The vagueness of Saul's request here, bring up for me whom I shall name to you, leaves our medium in the dark, even as Saul's identity is hidden from her in the dark. She could no more divine who was in front of her than she could divine whom he wanted her to bring until he makes the suggestion. Verse 9. 
this diviner does not and cannot divine that Saul is in front of her, if it appears that she can divine the dead, bring up the spirits of the netherworld, why can she not divine the living? If she appears to have supernatural powers to bring up the spirits of the dead, why are her supernatural powers hindered by Saul's disguise? But the dead are more definite to her, more discernible to her, more communicative to her, or so it would appear. So it would appear. And why does she fear death? She traffics with the dead. She claims familiarity with the dead. She is a friend and medium of the spirits of the dead. Why is she afraid of joining those with whom she claims to be so familiar? Yet one more familiar spirit amongst a host of familiar spirits with whom she is already familiar, or so it would appear. Verse 11. Once again, why would God allow Samuel to speak when God himself would not speak to Saul? If not by a living prophet, verse 6, why by a dead prophet? And Saul is called a prophet in first, and Samuel is called a prophet in first Samuel 3.20, second Chronicles 35.18. And by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 20. It may appear that Samuel is called up. So it would appear. But in verse 12, she sees nothing. She sees nothing. For what she sees, she projects. She is a spiritist. Saul asks for Samuel. She gives Saul what he asks for, or so it would appear. What she really sees is Saul, now unmasked before her, because only King Saul on a dark night of desperation would ask for Samuel. Why have you deceived me? I'm here to deceive you, to project what you expect. You expect Samuel, I project Samuel in my deception. I will give you your expectation as the fruit of my deception. Appearances are deceiving. And I am a master of deception. Except you tricked me with your deceit, so I will return the favor. I will trick you with my deceit. I saw an old man wrapped in a mantle. And Saul sees nothing. His face is to the ground. It appears to his mind and not to his seeing eyes to be Samuel because she describes the garb and the aged figure Saul recalls. And Saul, deceived, accepts her testimony of what she pretends and thinks that it appears. Why should her cry of fright come at the materialization of the familiar spirit she claims to be able to conjure? No, she cries out not at her artifice, but at the unmasking of the king who has sentenced her artifice to death. That's what gets the shriek from her. Not the fact that she's claimed that Samuel has come up, whom she's only projected because Saul asked for Samuel. 
but because now she knows that the king who issued the edict to execute all mediums and spiritists is in front of her, and now she's afraid. Verse 13, again, Saul sees nothing. He says as much. He asks what she sees. She sees for him with her power of suggestion. All that is there is what she says is there. And she is a deceiver. She is a liar. What she says appears to be so is not necessarily so. Appearances suggested are not necessarily appearances in reality. The power of suggestion. And this specter, this form, she calls it in Hebrew Elohim. She calls it gods coming up out of the earth. Does any creature have the power to bring the dead up out of the earth? Does any sorcerer have the power which belongs to God alone? Halloween Halloween fantasies and spooks may traffic in this dark make-believe, but God will not give his glory to another, least of all to a sorcerer. And since when is Samuel a god, an Elohim, to be brought up out of the earth? Samuel, on his death, went to heaven, at least on the orthodox interpretation of the biblical construction. He would have had to come down from above, out of heaven, not up out of the earth. No. What appears here is not reality. This is no eschatological intrusion of a heaven-ascended Samuel. This is deception. This is a lie. This is sorcery, which trades on the gullibility of the imagination, intrigued with and often obsessed with the spirits of the dead. Verse 15. Samuel said, so it would appear, but the mutterer, the one speaking out of the belly, is the medium. Why have you disturbed me? Not even the devil himself can disturb or raise up a glorified soul. If Samuel is in heaven, it is certain no medium can bring him out or down. It is certain that no devil can bring him out or down. To do so would be to remove them from the glory presence of God. And once Samuel's soul is in the glory presence of God, God won't let it go. Or do you believe in the transmigration of souls after death? That they move between heaven and earth, heaven and hell, heaven and purgatory, whatever you want to call it. And they're not permanently at rest in heaven. Permanently at rest at the feet of the throne of God. Never to be disturbed from that rest because God won't let them go. 
what nonsense is this that we think that this wicked woman has the power to bring back the soul or the spirit or the real form of the dead and departed Samuel, beloved of God. The narrator is once again, as he did in the previous chapter, leading us to read the narrative in the light of appearances are not reality. It appears, Samuel said, but appearances are deceiving out of her belly, she says, Samuel said. And now notice how she plies her art. Saul tells her all she needs to know. He tells her he's afraid of the Philistines. He tells her God has departed from him and will not speak to him. A duplicate of verse 6. He asks her to read his fortune. Verse 16, she parrots back to Saul what Saul has revealed to her in verse 15. You don't need sorcery or supernatural knowledge here. All she has to do is listen to what he said and feed it right back to him. Verse 17, she puts in the alleged Samuel's mouth what everyone in Israel knows. God has torn the kingdom from Saul and given it to his neighbor David. A virtual direct quote from 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. News has spread all over Israel when Samuel rejected Saul, when God rejected Saul. No supernatural knowledge here. It is natural, everyday newspaper stuff. Verse 18. She again puts in the alleged Samuel's mouth what everyone in Israel knows. Saul did not obey God in destroying Amalek, and so God has departed from him. Circumstances well known from 1 Samuel 15, verses 18 and 19. Again, no supernatural knowledge here. This is news that's spread all over Israel. Saul's been rejected. Dave's been elected because Saul didn't kill the Amalekites. And he tore Samuel's robe. Everybody knows it, including the witch of Endor. Verse 19. She doesn't need to be a rocket scientist to conclude that Israel will be given over to the Philistines. Something portended in Saul's rejection of God's commandment. Now come to the moment of crisis in Saul's desperation, Saul's fear and deception. No supernatural knowledge here, just an educated guess that this skulking, cowering king is no match for a Philistine army the next day. Roll the dice. 50-50 chance you're right or wrong. He doesn't look like he's going to win any battle on a battlefield. Okay, you're going to get killed tomorrow. None of what the witch of Endor predicts requires supernatural knowledge. It's all naturally known, remembered, and used by her artifice as a deceiver. The road to Endor is easy to tread for mother or yearning wife, for there it is sure we shall meet our dead as they were even in life. 
Earth has not dreamed of the blessing in store for desolate hearts on the road to endure. Whispers shall comfort us out of the dark. Hands, ah, God, that we knew. Visions and voices, look and hark, shall prove that the tale is true and that those who have passed to the further shore may be hailed at a price on the road to endure. But they are so deep in their new eclipse, nothing they say can reach unless it be uttered by alien lips and framed in a stranger's speech. The son must send word to the mother that bore through a hireling's mouth. Tis the rule of endure. And not for nothing these gifts are shown, but such as delight are dead. They must twitch and stiffen and slaver and groan ere the eyes are set in the head. And the voice from the belly begins, therefore. We pay them a wage where they ply at endure. Even so, we have need of faith and patience to follow the clue. Often at first, what the dear one saith is babble or jest or untrue. Lying spirits perplex us sore till our loves and their lives are well known at endure. Oh, the road to endure is the oldest road and the craziest road of all. Straight it runs to the witch's abode as it did in the days of Saul, and nothing has changed of the sorrow in store for such as go down on the road to endure. Rudyard Kipling knew a little bit about that because he knew how many, like Arthur Conan Doyle, had pursued spiritism in hopes of communicating with a dead son or dead brother. And how much agony and money had been wasted on spirit mediums. And how much deception had caused broken hearts and agony of soul. Nothing has changed of the sorrow in store for such as go down on the road to endure. The theme of a contrary reading of 1 Samuel 27 and 28 is the theme of what appears is not reality. What David appears to be to Achish is not the real story. What the witch of Endor appears to be to Saul is not the real story. She is a deceiver. All spiritism, all sorcery is deception. And so we walk away, as Saul walked away into the night, Saul's downward spiral of darkness, even the darkness of imminent death, grasps Saul and pulls him down, down, down into eternal darkness. What appears to be real here is not real. It is deception. It is the work of the chief liar and deceiver of the world. For he is a liar from a beginning. And so he uses one of his servants to lie to Saul. As David is other than he appears in chapter 27, 
So the witch of Endor is other than she appears. No supernatural power here, just the ordinary deception of the dominion of sin. The eschatological David has delivered us from that sinful dominion. Let us not, with Saul, walk out into the night pursuing the darkness. Nor let us not, with Saul, pursue the spirits of the dead. We belong to the Lord of life, the Lord of life eternal, and to a land where there is no darkness. Little children, walk as the sons and daughters of the light, the light of the world, who is Jesus. What appears is not reality. Now, I'm certain that you have something to say about that. Yes. All right. Um, Why couldn't this be the evil spirit that has tormented Saul? Why couldn't it be uh, this is... And that's why she cries out. She sees Samuel. She doesn't know. Why is she the one that has to be the one that says everything that is known? Why can't it be the evil spirit continuing to do something that would then torment Saul? I mean, we know that he has an evil spirit. We know that an evil spirit would not respond, you know, would not be from God. And so... So you would have the testimony of an evil spirit manifesting itself as a prophetic word from God? No, it's not prophetic. He doesn't, he doesn't prophesy anything. You're right. He doesn't say anything that hasn't already been known. Yes, but she, she ventriloquizes the fact that the Lord is uh, giving this information out. And so she's claiming to be uh, relaying something to him from the Lord. <clears throat> And consequently, we have the dilemma of God apparently endorsing a uh, an accurate revelation or prophecy from a person who has no endorsement of God. In fact, a person who has, in fact, been banned and condemned by God. So God does not endorse those who are uh, in opposition to him. the verse that says uh, when the woman saw Samuel, she cries out in a loud voice. So she sees something that she wasn't expecting, not merely that it is Saul, and she knows that she now recognizes Saul, but why why would the author trick us as well? Trick the reader as well? He's not tricking you. He's causing you to realize that this is trickery. So that when she sees Samuel, or when the text says she sees Samuel, he's saying, no, reality, appearance is not reality. I've already set you up for this in the previous narrative, and I've set you up for it through this narrative. I'm doing the same narrative thing consistently throughout these two chapters. I'm showing you that, in fact, what appears is not real. She's not real. Samuel's not real. This is all projection and suggestion. This is the law, this is the language of phenomenology, this is the phenomenal language of what she claims is there. But what she claims is there is a specter, is a will-o'-the-wisp. 
It is her power of suggestion dominating Saul. It's what he wants to see. She gives him what he expects. It's what the mediums do. It's what Kipling's referring to as they draw out the story the longer you go in the seance. Yes, go ahead. Could, could that phrase, are you suggesting the phrase, when the woman saw Samuel, are you suggesting that phrase actually means when she saw that it was Samuel that he was asking for? Yes, in, in effect. The, narr- the narrator is using this appearance is not reality motif, even there with the language of apparent appearance. Go ahead. Yeah, the other thing, that you, the point you made, was, the point, as I understand it, you made the point that the what the spirits do is they claim to uh, to communicate from the dead to the living. That their job is not to make spirits appear. That they're actually uh, a mediator of communication. Now, if that's true, then uh, it would seem it would follow that that's probably what she's doing here, as opposed to making somebody appear. Thanks for your help, Art. Is that I hadn't thought about that, but it's a very good point in my favor. In the narrator's favor. All I was doing was using your definition of what a spirit is. See, I need all the help I can get. Thank you for making my point explicitly so well. Yes, Margaret. I love this because I've heard preachers argue that this was Samuel. Sure, you know that. And the reason I've never thought it was was because in the scriptures, whenever anyone bowed down to a servant of God, they said, No, no, don't worship me, I'm not God. Saul prostrated himself before this, whatever it was, and he didn't say, Don't kneel to me. Very good. I didn't exploit that point of homage. The word in the Hebrew is almost close to worship. It's very close to worship. So it's a very it's a point very well taken. Um, Yes, I'm definitely in a minority here. Okay, you you read the commentaries, you read evangelicals, you read classic reformed people. Even my great hero Gerhardus Voss thinks it's really Samuel here. I don't think so, Gerhardus. I think you have to read more carefully. You have to read against the grain, as I did in chapter 27. So if you're going to torpedo me, you're going to have to torpedo me on two chapters, not just one, because I'm creating a narrative paradigm. I'm saying that what he's done is he set us up in 27, and he's continuing the motif in 28. He wants us to look beyond appearance. That's what he wants us to do with David and Philistia and with Saul at Endor. Yes. Are you back to help me, or are you going to trouble me? Well, today I'll help you. Tomorrow I'll trouble you. <laughs> but, you know, you made the point that it would be illogical. I mean, God wouldn't first say, no, he's not going to answer Saul, and then provide a way through Samuel. And I just noticed that in verse 15, that same point comes up when Saul talks to his apparent Samuel and says, complains that God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I've called on you to tell me what to do. So if God won't help me, then I'll call on you um, as a substitute for God or somebody to run contrary to God. Or something to get away to God that he couldn't get. So the point is the living prophet didn't speak to him. Why is the dead prophet going to speak to him? If God shuts it down with the living, then how is the dead going to have a voice to give him what he wouldn't have while he was alive? 
Yeah, you see, it, it just does not compute. Carol? It seems like what I'm, I'm reading is that Saul cut off all the mediums and the spirits. It was him that had them killed? Yes, verse 3. So if he did that, was he then showing that he was afraid of their of their divinations or whatever that, that was that they did? I no, he, he is looking for a word from God or looking for a word from the beyond. And in doing so, he invokes the death penalty that he's uttered against himself. Uh, really, that's another irony of this. You know, he goes to break his own rule and he brings the sentence of death uh, upon himself as a result of rebelling against God. Samuel had prophesied it uh, when he uh, tore the kingdom away from him. Uh, Scott? In your favor, um, tell me if I'm wrong, is it this, in, in terms of the question about whether this could have been evil spirit speaking, is it not true that every place in the Bible where we have a demon actually speaking, it's speaking out of a human vessel, not out of an image? And isn't it true that demons never actually give forth images uh, and visions uh, throughout Scripture, but only God Himself? Yes. As far as I understand it, that's correct. I don't know of any uh, demonic uh, vision or projection that's anything other than a lying wonder. It's deception. He's a deceiver from the beginning. Everything he does is unto the purpose of deception. But he cannot do anything supernatural. <clears throat> Otherwise, we got a tiger by the tail. Nicodemus says, we know you come from God. Nobody could do these things unless God were with him. We know come from the devil because the devil can do miracles. If the devil can do miracles, we got a real problem. He's a creature, after all. He's a creature. Creatures can't do miracles. Only God can do a miracle. Nicodemus, John 3, 2. Nicodemus gets it. So-called credit of the proposer argument. My glory I will not give to another. If we're going to mix up these categories, you see, we're really in pea soup. You notice that Nicodemus doesn't say, we know that you're the devil incarnate. We know you come from God. The only option is, You've come from glory. You've come from God's realm. We don't think that doing the things that you're doing are demonstrations or evidences of satanic power. Even Jesus says it. Why would Satan cast out Satan? He wouldn't cast himself out. All right, well, uh, yes, Anita. Along the line with what Kristen was leading toward, there's no possibility that she could have actually had a vision, because even Saul was prophesying, even though that God had given him the evil spirit. So why couldn't this switch not be doing the same thing? Again, I don't, I don't think she has any real prophetic powers. I think she is working off of her trade. She's an experienced spiritist, and that means that she picks up all of her clues from the encounter and she plies her art out of the encounter. So what she projects is the power of suggestion. And that power of suggestion is part of her, of her trade of deceiving the person that comes to her. They think she's real. She knows she isn't. 
She's playing the game. Or so I conclude from the narrator's clues as I read the narrator's clues. If you read them differently, blessings on you. Good night. <laughs> George, come on up front and I'll, I'll, I'll take it up here. 